Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Kieran Pem about his recent book, Endless Flight The Life of Joseph Roth, published by Granta Book in 2022. Karen Pym is a non-fiction author. His previous book was about a man who connected the worlds of art, rock and roll, and criminality in 50s and 60s London. That book, Jumping Jack Flash, David Litvinov, and the Rock and Roll Underworld, was named the best debut biography of the year in The Guardian. Aside from writing biographies, Karen Pym is the author of popular science book about dinosaurs and the editor of a volume of medieval Hebrew poetry. He also works as a writing tutor, journalist, proofreader, and copy editor. His journalism for national titles include includes a cover story for The Guardian's Weekend magazine and book reviews for The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, and The Spectator. Karen Pym teaches creative writing courses at the University of East Anglia. Hello, Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Natalia. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Congratulations on this new biography. Endless Flight tells the story of Joseph Roth, and this story is fascinating for many reasons. Uh, One of the intriguing things is that his life appears to be tightly connected with political and historical developments that took place during his lifetime. So when did you encounter Joseph Roth for the first time and how did the idea to write a book on Joseph Roth transpire? Okay, I first encountered his work in 2002 or three. It was when his book, uh, The Wandering Jews, was first published in English translation, Mm. published by Granter, translated by Michael Hoffman. Um, And that book was recommended to me by my cousin, who thought that I would find it interesting. And I did. I I found it fascinating, Um, not only as a survey of of the situation of Jewish communities within Europe in the 1920s when he was writing it, but also for what it told us or what it didn't tell us about the author. He came away with a rather haunted sense of this man who was semi-present in in the text, but also not quite. One of the best-known bits of the book is when he goes to Galizia and goes to a little town, goes to a shtetl and describes... um, the people that he encounters there, the wonder rabbi that he meets, um, the Hasidic Jews that he encounters, and their their lifestyles, their rituals, their traditions. Um, and what you don't read, what you're not told, is that actually this was the world that he came from. This was the world that Joseph Roth actually originated from. But he writes about it rather as if he was a kind of intrepid uh, reporter from afar, um, exploring on behalf of all of us who who were not from that world, which by then he was in a way, because by then, this this book was published in 1927, by then he was kind of well-established in Vienna and Berlin Mm -hmm. and Paris. He was known in all these places as a novelist and journalist. Um, 
and he had tried to assimilate into these places mm-hmm. and in doing so he had kind of left behind the world of the Ostjude and the Eastern Jews that he originated in and yet there's clearly some kind of knowledge, some fascination on his part, clearly this world still has a hold over him so the way he writes about it is so beguiling and fascinating and makes you think well who is this man he's kind of intimate with the story with the with the world he's describing and yet he doesn't quite make that explicit in the text so i was i was fascinated and haunted by that um i thought this is a man this is a writer i would like to know more about i didn't really do much about that for quite a while until i'd finished writing my last book which was published in 2016 and then after that, I started thinking about what I might do next. And I started thinking again about this writer who had fascinated me when I read, when I read him, I guess, um, yeah, about 13, 14 years before. And I started reading around him a bit more, and I, I Googled him, and I kind of got all the more fascinated. Um, and one of the things that I read was a review of his collected letters, again translated by Michael Hoffman, a review by Lyra Feigl in The Guardian, which said that there was no English biography of him, and the collected letters, which trace the trajectory of his life, would stand as his biography. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. There's a major writer Mm -hmm. who doesn't have uh, a, a biography in English. Um, I thought, I wonder if I could do something about that. So I started reading around more intensively from there. And the more I read, the more fascinated I became. And the project gained momentum from there, really. Um, And here I am, several years on. Um, That was 2017. So, yeah, it's been about five and a half years. Mm -hmm. And here I am now, and I have quite a a bulky book about Joseph Roth's life um, Mm -hmm. as the end product of of all of that reading and research and thinking about his work and his life. Uh, Do you have um, any uh, algorithm for compiling a biography? So um, do you have some sort of a strategy that helps you probably to um, um, systematize all the material that... um, as, as we can imagine, it involves a lot of reading and a lot of material that has to be somehow um, put together in order to create this um, nice portrait, right, of yeah. those on whom you write biographies. Sometimes the system seems more apparent in retrospect, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of look back over what you've done and think, oh, yeah, I can see now, um, you know, the, the kind of routes that I followed. But sometimes it's a combination of having a kind of root, a systematic approach in mind, but also being alive to the tangents that are thrown up, the digressions that are offered to you in the course of your reading, and being alive to following those. So I guess I always start out with um, a bit of a structure in mind. The first thing was to read him comprehensively, um, Mm -hmm. to read all of the novels and the journalism, and then reading around that to read the critical studies of his work, Uh, to read the translator's introductions, primarily by Michael Hoffman, but by other translators as well, Um, to speak as well with experts on his life and work. Um, I find that, you know, whenever you write a non-fiction book, you develop a few kind of friendships with people who are are experts 
on your subjects, people who can point you in the right direction and become a sounding board as you go along, um, people that you can approach and say, does this reading of this text feel reasonable or, or correct to you? Um, and so I guess kind of feeling your way forward between the reading and speaking with people. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other critical thing is traveling, um, is researching on foot, which mm-hmm. was obviously slightly more complicated than it might have been normally because I wrote this book through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started properly in 2018, once I'd got my book deal at the beginning of 2018. And uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to go to Ukraine, um, go to the little town of Brody where he was born and grew up. Um, and I did that. So I went there early 2019. Um, and of course, I had all these ideas about following his his whole life, following in his footsteps really across Europe. Mm-hmm. So I was going to go to Ukraine. And then I was going to go to Vienna. I was going to go to Berlin. I was going to go to Paris and Amsterdam and Ostend all of these key locations in his life. Well, then COVID came along, and in the middle of all of that, um, I suddenly couldn't really do any of the things that I wanted to. So having got the Ukraine trip done before the pandemic came along, um, I then had to write and research remotely for a couple of years, really, all of 2020, most of 2021. And then at the end of 2021, As travel restrictions began to ease a bit, um, I started hastily, with my deadline looming, I started (laughs) fitting in some trips at the last minute. So I went to Paris uh, late 2021, November 21, um, and then January 22, I went to Amsterdam and Ostend as well, (laughs) thanks to my book's Dutch publishers, Atlas Contact, um, who very kindly uh, funded a trip for me over, over there so that I could write more mm-hmm. about his time in, in the Low Countries, um, which was a win-win, really. I wanted to be able to do that, but it was also a bonus for them so that I could kind of tailor the book mm-hmm. more to, to their readership as well. Um, so, yeah, really at the last at the last minute, because my, my deadline was early 2022, mm-hmm. I managed to fit in those, those trips as well. And the book, I'm sure, benefited from from going to those places. Um, so Paris, I, I wanted to follow up. Amsterdam. I wanted Sorry? to I, I wanted to follow up on this question about um, hmm. um, uh, traveling to all these uh, places uh, where uh, at some point uh, Joseph Roth lived or worked. So um, why was it? crucial from your perspective right to go and experience those physical places geographical places and uh in what way uh did this trip somehow shape uh your narrative and your book in general whether there were some Mm. changes for instance as a result of traveling abroad and uh, seeing those places and just uh I don't know, just being in those locations. Yeah, um, let me think. I'm, I'm trying to think what um, what changes there might have been to my understanding of, mm-hmm. of his life as a result of traveling to those places. Um, 
I mean, I suppose one example would be when I got to Paris, um, I stayed in the hotel that was the first hotel that Roth stayed in when he first came to Paris, first settled there in summer 1925. He and his wife, Friedel, first of all, stayed in the Hotel de la Place de Lorient in the sixth arrondissement. And it's it's still functioning. So I thought, well, I've got to stay there. So I stayed there. And it's on the Place de Lorient, which is, you know, this, this, this place, this square, which has streets shooting off in every direction into the left bank. And um, going there really made me realise how much he would have felt at the heart of things. It's such a, a beautiful and culturally important location. And you could imagine that um, he really would have felt the sense of homecoming that you, you get from his letters that he wrote around that time. You could see why he would have been so excited to arrive there. What a feeling of kind of spiritual and intellectual homecoming he would have he would have felt on arriving there at that time. So that was important. Um, obviously, going to Broadview was, was incredibly important. I felt that that should be the first place that I went, and, and it was. And it really gave me a sense of... You know, how far east he originated from, how far he travelled mm-hmm. in geographical and cultural and intellectual mm-hmm. terms um, between his place of origin and the worlds that he worked himself into in, in Vienna and Berlin and Paris. Um, so to walk those streets and to see the, the ruins of the Jewish mm-hmm. Eastern Europe that he, he grew up in, to, to see that really kind of brought home what this town had been when when he lived there and just how poignant it is that um, like so many formerly predominantly Jewish towns in Eastern Europe, it's a a shadow of what it once was. And so to see the ruins of the synagogue, for example, um, and to walk walk the streets and see the signage saying that, you know, there used to be many smaller synagogues and cheders um, around the streets just to get the kind of the sense of the remnants of the Jewish right. world that that once flourished there. I found that very moving and I think that fed into the earliest parts of the book in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing to mention is that I did, um, although I had to cancel a trip to Vienna because they went into lockdown just as I thought I was going to go there. I had at least been there on a stopover on, on my way back from Ukraine. Um, and I had a, a few hours where I, I walked around Leopoldstadt, um, where Roth lived and where also, just by the by, it was where my maternal grandparents came from as well. And I guess some of my interest in his, his life mm-hmm. comes from being interested in my Jewish ancestry on that side and, uh, and the origins, the world that my grandparents and great-grandparents came from. So I, I had some time walking around Leopoldstadt, and again, that kind of gave me a sense of the, the Jewish enclave that he moved into when he first moved to Vienna and how, although he'd moved from what was Galicia to Vienna, um, it was still a very Jewish world, but it was a Jewish world, a Jewish quarter within a bigger, more cosmopolitan city, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so the travelling was incredibly important, really. I think, you know, it, it hopefully brings your writing to life. That's the idea anyway, because 
you go into these places and however much may still be extant from the time that you're writing about, you still get certain certain feelings that give you a sense of geography, mm-hmm. of atmosphere, of culture. So to walk around Vienna, you get a sense of scale. Um, what else? I mean, it's just things like, it, it can be things as small as if you walk out of the, um, the alleyway that's uh, led from, where, from the house where Roth grew up, onto the street he grew up on, um, which was then, in German, it was known as Goldgasser. It's now, you might have to correct my pronunciation, but Velizia Solotta, you know, meaning the same thing, kind of golden streets. Um, um, to walk from the, from the courtyard where the house was, through the alley, onto the streets, and to get the view that he would have seen as he walked out onto the streets as a boy, that kind of thing can really help put you into your subject's uh, perspective. Um, and just it can be things as little as, you know, that if the sun is kind of shining in a certain direction, then shadows fall in this direction. This side of the street is cast in shadow. The light plays on these, this kind of facade here. You can see the spire of a, a church down the road. Um, you know, you, you get into the perspective, it, and that enables you to write with a bit more atmosphere and colour and just a bit more sense of human experience instead of mm-hmm. writing from afar with a kind of cooler, more detached quality. Right. So that's what, I, what I'm always aiming for anyway when, when I try to write about people. I like to try to get into their world as much as I can. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, in your book, you track Roth's tortuous identity journey, and you already touched upon this a little bit. So, Roth comes from Galicia, uh, travels to Vienna, then Paris, and he did um, some other traveling as well, including the Soviet Union. Uh, so, he had um, a very conflate, uh, conflicted as well attitude toward his Eastern Galician Jewishness, which you also uh, write about in your biography. And later he gets fascinated with Austria, he writes in German, and as Hitler rises to power, he at some point um, is repulsed by his German language. Um, conflicting attitude to a uh, language resonates with many Ukrainians, for instance, today as a result of Russia's full-scale um, invasion. So could we talk, take a um, moment and talk about Roth's abhorrence of German while keeping in mind similar experiences almost a hundred years after Roth's experience? So what does language mean to a writer, an individual who feels attacked and violated by language? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, you have these letters that, that Roth wrote um, in the mid-1920s, by which time he, he was pretty much settled in France. He, he had kind of fled Germany. He was disgusted by the rise of nationalism and the emerging national socialist movements. Um, and he felt clearly incredibly thwarted by the fact that the only language he, he spoke well enough to write in was this language that had become to him an embodiment of barbarism. Mm-hmm. Um, so he 
he wrote these letters. Um, there was one where he writes German is a dead language. Mm-hmm. Um, and he clearly, he, he felt repulsed by the fact that he could only kind of think in, in this language and write in it. You know, it was the only language that he was well, equi- well enough equipped in to write to his satisfaction. He spoke about half a dozen languages to varying degrees, but none of the others well enough to create literature. Mm -hmm. He's compelled to write in a language that, for him, by then, has become synonymous with the death of civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet he's, you know, it's the only language he can write in. So that must have had some appalling existential effect upon him. Mm It's. You know, I think he found it really incredibly alienating. His thoughts took form in a language that he had come to to despise. Um, what do you do when you're in that position? It's you, you know your very innermost sense of self, the way that you think about things, is tainted. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at the ways in which Roth became so kind of you know, so fractured and fragmented and torn up inside and mm-hmm. convulsed with self-loathing and also loathing for the world around him as he saw it developing. I think that's probably a significant factor within that process. So it's a really interesting point you raise about Ukraine as well. I mean, I'm not properly qualified to comment on that, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you think about what the what the parallels are there, um, and what you thought about your and your compatriots' situation when reading what I had to say in, in the book about that. Yeah, um, yeah. well, my, my question was prompted by the fact that after um, the uh, full-scale invasion uh, that took place uh, last yeah. year, uh, many yeah. Ukrainians decided to abandon uh, the Russian language uh, because yeah. for them, as you uh, just described the uh, response of uh, Joseph um, Roth, for them, the Russian language in this case became a language of violence. Yes, it became yes. A, a, a language of violence. And that kind of violence was felt not only on the linguistic level, but on the uh, somatic level, on the level of the just um, uh, bodily experiences as well. Uh, so um, for, for this reason, um, I, I just um, uh, wanted to follow up on uh, um, uh, Roth's um, ideas and thoughts in relation yeah. to his experience with with his with his language. Yeah, uh, I think that puts it brilliantly, as you say, at a somatic level. I mean, it, you know, it must have been absolutely consuming for him. Um, and I, th- I think it had a terrible effect on him. Okay. So he, he also participated in the First World War, and mm. um, those um, impacts were quite uh, traumatic on the one hand. On the other hand, they um, came to be quite significant for him as a writer. So would you talk a little bit about his um, experiences in um, person who participated um, in the First World War? Sure. Um, I think the place to start with that is the fact that for the first couple of years of the war, he wasn't involved. He was at university in Vienna when when the war 
broke out. Um, and he and his friend Josef Wittlin, both of them were pacifists, both were students at the university, and both of them felt to begin with that they wanted no part of this war. They felt it was a war launched by the ruling classes um, that young men were paying the price for. Um, and, you know, they resisted against it. But within a couple of years, that position came to feel untenable. Um, on the one hand, they, they repeatedly saw friends go off to fight and either return terribly injured or not return at all, which was all the more traumatic. Um, they felt increasingly guilty about this. And they also felt by 1916 that... Um, Perhaps, as aspiring writers, fighting in the war might be actually the source of some interesting material for them. And so they were quite clinical about that. They saw it as, as an exercise in gaining material that would enable them to write firsthand about powerful subjects in a way that they'd not really been able to as, as students in Vienna previously. So um, they signed up, or they, they tried to sign up to fight. They were both kind of quite slight, um, not physically very well-developed young men, and they were actually turned down by the military doctor. And they had to persuade him to allow them to enlist in the end, and, and they did manage to enlist. Um, and then, so the latter half of the First World War, Roth uh, served in the Imperial Army, um, mm -hmm. Whether he saw any frontline action is unclear. There's no evidence that he did. Mm -hmm. What he seems to have done primarily is to have been a military journalist and censor located mainly in Lemberg, now Lviv. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he may well have been going out to the front and coming back again. We're just not sure. But um, regardless, whether he fought or not, mm -hmm. um, what he witnessed during the war and in the aftermath was enough mm. to traumatise him at a very profound level in multiple respects. One, he saw the injuries inflicted upon men of his generation, mm -hmm. um, grotesque, terrible injuries. I mean, there's this incredibly powerful piece of journalism that he wrote um, in the early 20s, and it describes a funeral parade um, of injured ex-servicemen ex um, following the funeral cortege uh, for uh, a fellow ex-serviceman who had actually publicly committed suicide at a meeting of kind of injured ex-servicemen. I think it was in Lvov, as it was then. Um, and then it was, you know, he... It was his funeral, and all of these fellow Interdex servicemen follow the coffin through the streets of the city to the cemetery. And Roth describes them, and it's horrendous. He describes their different terrible injuries in really quite grotesque, compelling ways. Um, and you get a sense very clearly from, from this article of just how the severity and horror of their injuries imprinted itself uh, on, on his mind. Um, so that's the kind of particularity of the, the trauma. But the more general trauma that 
affected him every bit as much, if not more, was the fact that he lost his home, as he saw it. He lost his homeland. Mm -hmm. The homeland that he grew up in, um, the the Habsburg Empire um, and the crown land of Galicia that he, he grew up in, uh, as he later described it as the, the only fatherland he ever had. Of course, the Habsburg Empire, the dual monarchy, collapsed at the end of the First World War, and with it, the world that Roth had grown up in. Um, and he never really felt he had a home again. He was always looking for a home afterwards. As I said, he felt he had it for a while when he came to Paris, but that kind of, that, that faded away fairly quickly. And he was always searching for home from that point on, onwards. But the kind of childhood cradle, as he once described it, of the Habsburg world, mm -hmm. um, when that collapsed and disappeared, it enacted a, a terrible trauma on him. He felt homeless. He felt rootless. Um, mm -hmm. He was kind of literally stateless in the aftermath of the war. He had Polish nationality conferred upon him, but he didn't want that. He wanted to be Austrian. So he then had to apply for Austrian nationality and eventually received it. But then that became quite a saga through the 1920s because he had to prove on a couple of occasions that he really was. Um, he really merited Austrian citizenship um, in an anti-Semitic environment when the Austrian from the former eastern parts of the Austrian Empire were being very looked down upon by many people in, in Vienna and face, you know, viewed with anti-Semitic hostility. So he never really had a home again. Um, and that was another aspect of this kind of this great trauma, this great ripping away of the world he had grown up in. So we've seen that the language he grew up learning and speaking and writing in became cold and hostile to him. And the world that he grew up in that seemed like his home collapsed around him as well mm -hmm. and vanished. So you can see how he'd, he would emerge into that post-war world in the kind of defenceless, vulnerable states that he did and how he became the very troubled person that he did. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, he, he indeed um, uh, embraced this sense of homelessness. Um, and uh, on the other hand, um, the way uh, you uh, present him, um, it looks like he felt at home when writing, uh, and uh, he would feel lost again in the world when he would put his pen down. And uh, his uh, habit of writing was also quite uh, uh, interesting. Public spaces would inspire him, not distract. So would you talk a little bit about Roth's writing routine? Yeah, I, I mean, I find that fascinating and mm -hmm. so counter to my, <laughs> yes. my needs as a writer. I mean, for me, it's hard enough to, to write if there's anyone else even kind of moving around in, in the house when, when I'm working That's at true. home, you know. Um, if I can hear my children kind of talking downstairs and then, you know, I, I, I start thinking, even if they're not actively, you know, if the noise isn't actively disrupting, I start thinking, oh, I might get dis I might get distracted. Mm -hmm. I can't think straight. What if someone comes, you know? Um, so, and I think many writers are like that. Um, so I'm astonished by the fact that for him, I think he, you know, he found silence off-putting and overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think he likes a kind of white noise mm. of the kind of hum of a cafe atmosphere around him. Um, he likes people actively talking around him. He likes sitting at a table with friends and he would move between these states. He would move between chatting with them and then slipping into his writing frame of mind. And then he, he would kind of return to his article and then he'd return to conversation for a bit and move back and forth between these states. You know, how, how you do that, I don't really know, but that was his preferred way of operating. And I suppose what I can understand that you take from that is because he was a writer, he was so fascinated by humanity mm-hmm. and so attuned to other people. Um, he came to life amongst other people and he was always on the lookout for little human stories. You know, he developed as a journalist before a novelist, mm. really. And as a journalist, he developed particularly as a, a practitioner of the feuilleton form, which were these kind of half-page sketches, um, typically describing you know little human encounters, little fleeting moments with universal implications. And so cafe life or street life, in the in the cities of central and western europe after the war lent itself to finding those kind of stories and so sitting in a cafe with all human life playing out around you and listening in you know maybe kind of peeking over the top of your newspaper and listening into the conversation playing out on the next table that kind of thing and then jotting down a few notes and then extrapolating some you know some possible implications and taking an idea for a run and spinning up a whole a whole story a whole little world what he called soap bubbles you know he was a great way of he had a great way of conjuring up these soap bubbles um from very kind of meager origins just little comments a little scene he might have seen somewhere and suddenly he's playing with these ideas and Mm -hmm. he's um it's just incredibly inventive and yet very very grounded and very acute at the same time. Mm-hmm. Had this wonderful balance between writing that was very rooted in, in the here and now, but also playful and inventive and imaginative and speculative as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of his practice, he the more you look at it, the more you can see why actually working in public worked for him. But I just hugely envied his powers of concentration (laughs) and his sheer kind of doggedness and determination to be able to just lock out what was around him and write um, when even when people were talking um, in very close courses to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could we talk a little bit about his relationship with uh, women? Uh, So he had quite uh, a um, uh, ambivalent relationship with his mother. Um, it was some sort between, um, uh, sort of between love and coldness. Uh, and um, his relationship um, with his wife, Friedel Reichler, uh, was also uh, far from being smooth. And um, uh, she, in fact, uh, proposed to him first, right? But yeah, uh, he yes. took some time and then left, and later they reunited. And one of Friedel's uh, friends described the woman after a few years of marriage and mentioned that Roth, quote-unquote, ruined her. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
So to start with his relationship with his mother, mm -hmm. um, I suppose the place you start with that is the fact that his father went insane before Roth was born um, and was taken into psychiatric care, first of all, and then lived with a, a rabbi, a, a wonder rabbi, who it was hoped might be able to cure him, but as far as we know, never did. And so Joseph Roth never met his father. Um, so there was a great absence where the father might have been. Um, and instead, he grows up with his mother, Maria, Maria Roth, um, near Grubel. Um, and they lived in her father's household on this street, Goldgasser in Brody. Um, and it was an incredibly tight relationship. You know, she understandably didn't want to lose her only child, having lost her husband, his mm -hmm. father. Um, and so she was incredibly protective, and this was counterproductive. Mm -hmm. He wrote in a little kind of reminiscence of childhood of um, how, and you know, we're never quite sure how true these, these reminiscences were, because he was a great fantasist and self-fictionalizer. But one of the one of the things he wrote was that he used to quietly kind of get dressed in the small hours of the night and slip out of the house just to wander the streets on his own in order to feel some freedom mm -hmm. because his mother was so overly solicitous and overbearing, overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, she was just kind of, she was always there, um, cared for him deeply, but this had a counterproductive effects that uh, he felt stifled and so what he did was he kind of he, he shook her off he um he moved from Brody to um the Uni University of Lemberg first of all didn't stay there very long then moved to University of Vienna during the first world war when she had to go to Vienna as a refugee from the east they lived together again for a while but then she returned um after the war, and they had very little to do with, e with each other for the rest of her life. She died in 1922, uh, very shortly before he married Friedel. Um, and by that point, they were really quite estranged, and he seems to have transferred his affections, which were already, already an ambivalent relationship, he transferred his affections from his mother to his wife. Um, and from that point on was the way to look at his relationship with women really is that I think on the one hand, he really needed his freedom. He was always very wary of being stifled in any way as he had been when he was growing up. And on the other hand, he looked to women to serve him, to mm -hmm. kind of ah, to wait on him in the way that, his his incredibly attentive mother had done and he was i mean you mentioned that he was ambivalent about women he, he was but there were he was also more than that i mean he was sadly i, I came to realize over the course of working on the book he was just plain misogynistic mm -hmm. um there's a story called the triumph of beauty uh, which he wrote in the 1930s um and whereas in some of his previous fiction he has seemed to objectify women to be rather patronizing towards them not really to 
inhabit women's perspectives very much in his fiction. In this story, it's clear that he despises women. I mean, it's it's horrible. It's the, the way that he writes about women is incredibly damning, mocking, belittling. He sees women as the ruin of men. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really horrible. It's the one story where he suspects his kind of inner darkest feelings about women are fully manifested. And this was written in the context of his marriage to Friedel having completely broken down in, in the context of her having gone insane. Mm -hmm. As his father went insane, she went insane and was institutionalized. But mm -hmm. her descent into schizophrenia came within a, a marriage that was horrendous, really. I mean, he was already controlling and belittling towards her. Um, his work always came first, his needs always came first. She was someone who was of anxious disposition and needed stability, needed calmness, needed to be rooted. Um, and instead, what she got was marriage to a man who lived out of three suitcases and lived in perpetual motion crisscrossing Europe by train, moving from one hotel to another. And she followed in his wake and lived in hotels with him. And it was just too much, I think. It was too unsettling. It was too confusing. And it just it amplified her anxiety terribly, and it absolutely broke her. And he wasn't very sympathetic, as far as we can tell. Um, so as her mental health declined, his drinking worsened, his drinking, no doubt, contributed to her mental health declining further, and the two things go hand in hand, and she was institutionalized, he became a fully blown alcoholic, mm -hmm. um, and his attitudes towards women from that point onwards were very troubling indeed at times. So, yeah, it's, um, it's the really the, the darkest elements of his personality that I discovered when, when really delving into who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about his uh, trip to the uh, USSR. And um, um, mm. he went there as a friend and as a well-known writer, I mean as a friend to the state, but he left as an quote-unquote enemy. What did he see? Why did he turn into this quote-unquote enemy? Of course, his image as an enemy is presented by the Soviets. Yeah. Um, why did he turn into an enemy, as they saw it? Um, mm -hmm. Well, he was skeptical but interested by the time he, he got there. Um, so, what I mean, as a student of a kind of radical student during the First World War. He, he was a socialist and something of an anarchist and, you know, someone who was fascinated by the revolution at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and then as the 1920s progressed, mm -hmm. he became increasingly sceptical. Um, and he, he was interested to go there to, to find out more about what was going on. Um, while he was there, he met Walter Benjamin, and they had an evening in Moscow um, where they were sitting and eating and drinking and talking together. Um, and Benjamin 
recorded in his diary afterwards. Um, he said, the long and the short of it, he, Roth, had come to Russia as a brackets, nearly, close brackets, confirmed Bolshevik, and was leaving it a royalist. <laughs> as usual, the country is left footing the bill for the change in colour that occurs in the convictions of those who arrive here as scintillating reddish-pink politicians <laughs> under the banner of left-wing opposition or idiotic optimism. <laughs> um, now, I'm not sure if he was a nearly confirmed Bolshevik, but he was kind of sympathetic stroke, stroke sceptical. I think he wanted to see the system work well, but was sceptical. Um, what he saw while he was there uh, was enough to make him think, hang on, there's something seriously wrong here. Um, and what I think really troubled him was the way that he saw people learning not to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. He was very troubled by how he, he saw people learning, how can I put it, um, he talks about tinned ideas, um, kind of prepackaged ideas, mm -hmm. um, and for someone who was if he was anything, he was a free thinker. He, nice. he became a great individualist. He was a, you know, a liberal in the end. He, he was very concerned with freedom, um, with having the capacity to think for oneself. Um, and he was very alarmed by the way he saw people being trained to think in correct ways, mm -hmm. to know what to say. Um, and uh, what, you know, how to say the right things that would enable them to progress within the Soviet system, mm -hmm. but not actually being able to think critically, to have any scepticism, um, to think for themselves. Um, and yeah, I think that troubled him deeply. Mm -hmm. You can see that as well in the novel that he wrote uh, while he was traveling in the USSR and afterwards, uh, flight without end. Um, he's, he'd obviously also picked up on the paranoia that people felt about the fact that people all around them could be informing on them, um, that you couldn't really trust anybody. Um, so I think those two things put together left mm -hmm. him you know, very, very troubled by what he saw. Um, and it was a critical part of the process, the pivoting that he went through in this point from having been socialist stroke communist to returning to the monarchism of his youth. He grew up very much admiring the Habsburgs, and deviated from that a bit as a young man, and then returned to basically being a kind of conservative Habsburg royalist, really, um, who from the early 1930s onwards, was increasingly convinced that Europe's salvation lay in restoring the Habsburg monarchy. He thought that was the only way of keeping nationalism and particularly Nazism at bay by, by returning the Habsburgs to the throne. Um, and yeah, that became one of his great obsessions in his final decade. Mm -hmm. So the, the six months that he spent in the Soviet Union was really pivotal and fundamental to setting him on that course that became so definitive uh, for for the rest of his life. 
So what, what was the most difficult, challenging part to write about while you were structuring this biography? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, uh, what was the most difficult part? Um, well, I suppose I was most conscious of really wanting to get the section on the Radetzky march right. Mm -hmm. So that felt difficult in that I, I felt like this is this is his great book, I've got to get this right. And it's the it's the heart of my book really, writing about that. It's the the apex of his his achievements. Um, I have to reflect, I have to show how great it was and how just the part it played in his career as a novelist. I felt I really had to get that right. Was that the hardest to write about though? I mean, I felt quite inspired yeah. while I was writing about it because it's such a great book. And <laughs> it's so fascinating to write about, um, which obviously makes you, it sparks off ideas yeah. and is, is an interesting and enjoyable to write about. What was, ah, what was the hardest to write about? Um, maybe it was, the sections, I would guess maybe a quarter of the way into the book, where I'm having to set out the intellectual grounds, mm -hmm. the, the cultural context in which we need to understand his sense of self as an Eastern Jew in that time and place. Mm -hmm. um, so where I was trying to make clear the tensions operating within him, the pulls between East and West, the feelings of admiration that he had for the Ostuden of, of the Galician world that he, he grew up in, um, but also the admiration he had for Vienna, the world of the Habsburgs, the world that he wanted to assimilate into, how torn and pulled he felt between those. Um, and there's, there are sections of the book there that I had to write without a huge amount of narrative. And I always want to try to get the discussion of ideas, to work through the ideas in the course of storytelling of, mm -hmm. of staying within a narrative i couldn't always do that there um and i suppose there were some bits there where i felt like am i getting a little bit boxed down here or you know i feel this is ground that needs to be covered but is this a little bit of me saying mm -hmm. to the reader bear with me here we need to get through this stuff before we can get up to get back to the narrative moving at pace mm -hmm. um I was never quite sure if I pulled that off entirely. I think that was probably the hardest bit. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a certain amount there of, hello, reader, um, <laughs> bear with me here. We, we've got to understand this stuff. So <laughs> please, um, yeah, let's mm -hmm. let's understand this. Let's understand that. And then, you know, you get back to, it's pretty much the First World War, really. From that point mm -hmm. onwards, I'd like to think the narrative doesn't really stop. There's always one thing moves to the next thing, moves to the next thing, mm -hmm. which was part of the great pleasure for me as a biographer. He had such a dynamic life mm -hmm. and it was so littered with consequential incidents and episodes 
so you could say you know this happened which made this happen which made this happen and it's a you know very propulsive life it's mm. he was a biographer's dream really um but yeah that would be the hardest bit so that um that kind of intellectual scene setting that I had to do around a quarter of the way in. Yeah. Um, are you working on a new biography at the moment? No, I'm not. No, um, I'm not working on anything at the moment. Uh, well, I'm not writing anything at the moment. So I'm teaching primarily. Mm -hmm. um, when I do write something else, I'm thinking it might not be a biography next. Mm -hmm. I've just written to biographies back to back all told they've taken me about 12 years mm -hmm. um and they've both been absolutely fascinating and involving and i've i've loved writing them both but i feel like the next thing i need to do needs to be fresh and different and conceptually something quite different um so i'm toying with the idea of a kind of social history Uh, it, yeah, I'm not going to say anymore because it's, it's actually too vague in my head to to talk about really anyway. But um, I haven't got far with that yet anyway. Um, I'm hoping to get it moving later in the year, perhaps. Well, uh, but for the moment, the the focus is on is on teaching really, and you know, I'm still talking about this book a fair bit, and I'm not someone who's very good at working up and writing, you know, one book idea when well, I've still got a, a head full of of the previous book Roth would have been brilliant at that I'm sure he was always working on multiple book ideas and you know he was finishing one while he was selling the idea mm -hmm. for the next and pocketing mm -hmm. the advance and then and then on we go but mm -hmm. I can't operate like that I'm afraid um I'm still letting go of this book <laughs> so and you're teaching uh creative writing uh courses and uh Do you have an opportunity of um, speaking about um, uh, Joseph Roth, for instance, uh, in your courses or um, somehow? I do sometimes. I mean, it's not, um, it's not woven into the curriculum in mm -hmm. any ways, but sometimes in the, in the past year or so, I've said to my students, um, I can give you an example of such mm -hmm. and such. When I'm teaching, I primarily teach on the MA in Biography and Creative Nonfiction at the University of East Anglia here in Norwich. Um, and sometimes I've been able to say to my students, here's an example from my experience of writing my book about Joseph Roth. Um, mm -hmm. And when I was teaching a different module last spring, we were talking a bit about the new journalism and Tom Wolfe, and we talked a bit about Joan Didion and Huntress Thompson and and all of that context. And mm -hmm. I thought it would be interesting for my students then to look at the kind of very personal journalism, personalized journalism that Roth was writing mm -hmm. 40 or 50 years before that school of American writers. Mm -hmm. So I sent them some of his foetons to look at, and that was quite productive as well. But that was supplementary reading, really. Um, so, yeah, not really woven into the curriculum, but more supplementary contextual reading stroke experience um and because some of what i teach is about you know the practice of writing biography and creative non-fiction as well as analyzing specific texts um having written this book and the previous book and having been a journalist for 25 years i can talk to them a fair bit about 
interviewing techniques mm -hmm. and archival research and footstepping, you know, getting mm -hmm. out into the locations, all of these things um, that were useful to me as a journalist, but also while writing this book. And so Roth has come up in, in that context as well at times. So I, I kind of get him in there whenever I can. <laughs> I, try to, I feel quite evangelical about him. You know, I, um, I've quite often told my students, if you like this kind of thing, then you must write, you must read Joseph, oh, excuse me. If you like this kind of thing, you must read Joseph Roth because he's brilliant. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I get him in there when I can anyway. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much, Kieran, for this conversation today. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for your book that really offers this captivating portrait of um, Joseph Roth. Uh, and also your book, um, once again, uh, illuminates all those political, historical and cultural complexities um, of the uh, first half of the 20th century and your book really also um, reveals how those complexities uh, impact the individual. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Natalia. That's, um, I very much appreciate your kind words about it and you've just summed up exactly what I was trying to do in the <laughs> book. So I'm really pleased to gather that you think it succeeded in that respect. And I'm most grateful to you for inviting me onto the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Today I spoke with Kieran Pam about recent, his recent book, Endless Flight, The Life of Joseph Roth, published by Granta Book in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.